25 years ago, when my wife gave birth to our first child, we had all sorts of choices for pediatricians, including solo practitioners, small groups, and larger practices. I also had plenty of choices for primary care for myself. But now, pediatricians are struggling to make ends meet, my primary care physician switched to a concierge model, and nobody's happy. Well, what's going on? Who's to blame? And what, if anything, can be done? Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. Need a new summer wardrobe? Something that will really impress your friends? Then head on over to caretalkpodcast.com to get your Care Talk swag. I'm talking hats, shirts, accessories, and more. And every purchase goes towards supporting the show. While you're there, Make sure to subscribe to the Care Talk newsletter to stay up to date on the latest happenings in healthcare business and policy. So, David, what is this? You know, you're you're running through doctors at an alarming pace. I think of your family as being healthy. What's going on there, John? I mean, I think that there's. It's not me. That's what I'll say. It's not my family. I mean, some of my kids are a little difficult, but I don't think that's what it is overall. It's something that's happening more broadly, John, with independent physician practices. You know, first of all, an independent physician practice, what is that? It's a practice that's owned and controlled by the physicians that are running it rather than a health plan or some outside investor, although it could still be affiliated with a health system. And there's just fewer of those independent practices around now, John. Well, I think that what people ought to think about is over the last 30 years, Hospitals have gotten bigger through acquisition. Doctors' jobs have become difficult because of the administrative burden of running an independent practice. But many, many years ago when you were young, I mean, a lot of years ago when you were young, the, the independent practice was sort of the, the, the ambition of the doctors uh, to kind of control their own destiny. And the identity of a doctor being an independent decision maker was matched with the ability to actually build, you know, a practice or a business individually. And as it, the administrative burden of running an office have gotten bigger, the percentage of time and dollars associated with running the practice has gotten bigger as opposed to practicing. A lot of doctors are moving to more of an employed model. And obviously, hospitals kind of ran the table to buy a bunch of doctors uh, to employ them in order to control their uh, their their market share. Now, I think there's an there's unfortunately. Well, I guess the question for you is: Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing of that doctors are employers employees as opposed to independent contractors? You know, I think about my own experience of getting a, a primary care doctor. You know, I, I was referred by somebody. Actually, one of our former colleagues, uh, Jan Malik, referred me to my doctor, a guy named Doctor Savitz. Just went down the street, went to see him. It, you know, it was it was called Savitz and Wanger Associates or something like that. And then, uh, it, then it became known as you know, BI Affiliates Downtown or something. So it became kind of corporate. And then he retired. And then you know, what's left is now concierge practice. So I like the idea of like going to a doctor, going to my doctor, not like a practice, not like a company or something like that. And I think from the patient standpoint, it's generally a negative thing. Uh, not to have the doctor sort of in charge. Now, being an independent practice is only part of it. There's a lot of other forces that are going on out there, right? A lot of it is due to having to compete with hospitals or to you know to, to deal with them in order to get the right uh, insurance 
reimbursement rate with the health plans, a lot of regulations and so on. So it's not just that the doctors can totally control this, but all else being equal, yeah, I want to go to an independent doctor. And remember, David, there are sort of multiple buckets here. There's the the old fashioned practice of a couple of doctors owning their own practice together where the physicians own it, and maybe those grow, and maybe the employees of physicians or the employers of physicians are physicians. There are models where the new em- employees, uh, docs of a larger institution, are run by private equity or individual business managers, or in some places, hospitals. But there's just no question that, I mean, I think it's the, um, you know, the majority of doctors when we were growing up owned their own practices, you know, 60 to 70% of it. But I think since 2019, I think less than 50% of all doctors own their own practice. Uh, again, that could be a mix of hospital and non-hospital purchasers. And more and more doctors are practicing in larger and larger practices. I Again, I don't know that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but certainly the the, the small town feel and the connectedness that a smaller practice has with its community typically uh, feels much more familiar. But I, I, I do think that that, because of just the industrial structure of healthcare, is going to continue to get smaller and smaller. And the other interesting thing is that doctors under the age of 40 are much more likely to be happy to be employed. And those who are over 40 are really are really are depressed by the prospect of 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 uh, of working in a large organization and having their independence kind of uh, uh, clipped. Uh, but I but I don't th- I don't think there's much we can do about it. I think the the question is, what do you think the consequences are? I know, John. I don't want to be accused here of waxing nostalgic, even though you you know always taking me back to the Eisenhower era or wherever you think what my childhood was. But let's actually distinguish a little bit between pediatrics and adults. There was a front page uh, story, lead story in the Boston Globe uh, this past weekend about pediatric practices not being, maybe not even being viable. And there's reasons for that. And then it's a little different from the adult side. One issue has to do with just there's lower reimbursements for uh, pediatrics in general. And pediatricians have always known, you know, they're going to make about 25% less than uh, than physicians overall. But another big factor is a lot of the patients now are Medicaid patients. So it's more than a third, like 36% of uh, pediatric patients. 50% of all births in America are to Medicaid moms. So it's, it, it's, it, it will continue to kind of grow towards that 50%. But I think, I think it's clo- just under 50% right now of kids in pediatric practices are on Medicaid. So you've got Medicaid, which is lower reimbursements growing. You've got mental health challenges we've talked about with kids, adolescents, um, that's, you know, the practices aren't always ready to handle that. They're starting to have more complex medical conditions, but they don't have the high price procedures to go along with it. And then the same issues as all sort of small companies, hiring, administrative costs, supplies, IT, cybersecurity. So they're just in a real tough spot. Now, some of that has to do with government policy, right? Because more, more patients are insured. So maybe they've got more people that do have insurance, but this, the issue of Medicaid is, I think, a really big one, uh, here. Uh, it's actually the the pediatrician will make thirty percent less than an internal medicine doctor. That's true, but an internal medicine doctor will often make only fifty cents on the dollar of what a specialist would make. So if you look at where you're going to go for residency, um, which is kind of what doctors do after they get to medical school, and you're looking at going into pediatrics, the great thing about pediatrics is most of your patients get well 
And that that's the and 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 you're very connected to the community, and it's a beautiful time of life, and that's inspiring. Uh, but when you're sitting there with you know half a million dollars of debt, because it's very expensive to get through college and medical school, and you're looking at a specialty that'll pay three times as much. Uh, the other challenge is there aren't that many pediatric residencies to even compete for because they are low reimbursement and low yield from a revenue perspective. Hospitals tend not to create that many slots. So in addition to paying less, there's fewer places to get trained. And then when you add to the fact that just running an office, billing a, uh, whether it's Medicaid, which is the state and federal program for the poor, or billing a, a health insurance company, if you imagine all of the challenges each of us have getting our bills understood and paid as a patient, multiply that times every bill that you send out, it pushes PD people into larger and larger pediatric practices or away from pediatrics because the yield isn't worth it. But at the same time, David, I think a lot of doctors would love to go into pediatrics. We've got a, a healthcare system in the US, which is 70% specialists and 30% in internal medicine and you know geriatricians and pediatrics. Whereas the rest of the world, it's the opposite. 70% of the care is provided by GPs and their the salary differential is much closer between the specialist and the general practitioner. So I think the we're almost starving the most the you know one of the one of the most vulnerable periods of life, pediatrics, to feed a specialist you know system, uh, and and then you add to that the fact that you get all the, the 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 graying of America and the lack of the the inability to expand the number of medical schools. I think we're talking immigration, baby. We're going to have to bring in a lot of new foreign docs. And if you look in those Medicaid neighborhoods, you see that a lot of the most the, 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 the doctors who care for folks in the most vulnerable areas are often uh, disproportionately immigrants because we're, we are kind of running out of doctors. Well, John, you make uh, some good points. And again, I know you're going to jump right on the immigration side. Let, let's talk about the adult primary care, it's not as bad as pediatrics. Now in pediatrics, I think people realize they didn't go into it necessarily to make a lot of money. So there's that's one thing. And some of them are reacting by actually cutting their own salaries even further. But on the adult care side, you've got a couple of re relief valves. One is that uh, sometimes uh, it's easier to be part of a hospital system there and, and get paid and subsidized for it even because you're getting the flow, they're giving the flow of uh, patients into the hospital where they can make some money on them from the specialists and from the procedures. There's also uh, adult physicians going into concierge medicine. So, you know, getting paid, not just- What is that? What is that called? What is that concierge stuff? It sounds vaguely French, John, but uh, the the idea is you get extra service. So it's like you're going to the hotel and the concierge is just going to help you. They're not just going to you know, put you in line with everybody else. Uh, but instead, what happens is you can easily get an appointment. The doctors have time to spend with you and you're paying extra for that service. Um, so it's time for the physician actually to, to listen and to be able to take your call. Yeah. Usually it's a, an elite or an upper middle class or rich person's uh, indulgence because you basically pay a subscription fee to the doctor to subsidize their practice or the and so they actually it can spend more time with you but that would suggest given the fast growth of concierge medicine david that we're just not paying our docs enough why not well well the thing is john i mean the other problem with the other issue i have with concierge medicine is that 
one of the things that they say is say, rather than having 2,000 patients in their panel, they might have 250. Well, so that means that now another 1,750 patients that they tossed out of their prior practice has to go and see us, you know, the same number of, uh, of people. You know, one of the issues with primary care in general is that, and this actually goes to the American Medical Association, they set the, the value of specialty care essentially higher, get paid more to do procedures or to be a specialist. And so that's actually part of the medical uh, profession itself um, tilting towards specialists. Now, there is a hint of some of the answer here, John, besides immigration, uh, which is actually happening, uh, which is value-based care. So at least for Medicare Advantage, uh, which is the managed care program for people of Medicare age, uh, this is paid according to value. And the primary care physician can uh, get paid reasonably for taking care of the patient uh, and helping them to uh, reduce costs overall. So that helps the system and it helps the primary care physician make a living. We don't really have that on the pediatric side. Well, why why, why can't we, David? I mean, what's wrong with, I mean, value-based care, which is healthcare in a budget where you're paid for performance or effectively managed care pays you the equivalent of a subscription fee. You know, you get paid a, potentially a, a capitation or a fixed budget per member per month. Like why can't, why wouldn't that work for pediatrics? Well, it could potentially work for pediatrics, but it hasn't been available. If you look at what Medicaid does, a lot of the shift of Medicaid has been to Medicaid HMOs, um, which don't tend to to do real value-based care. And what you've seen happen uh, in Massachusetts, I know, for example, uh, the state Medicaid called MassHealth is actually doing a program now where they will pay the physicians directly. Uh, to manage the patients, and so this is this is a new approach, uh, including with pediatrics, so that instead of uh, giving the money to managed care uh, organizations, Medicaid HMOs, which then just squeeze the uh, providers on a on a fee for service basis, they are actually trying to do some of this. So I think it it could possibly work. It there's some reasons it doesn't work as well, just due to the health status of uh, you know of of kids tends to be, they tend to be well in general, whereas you've got older people generally have chronic illnesses. Just so folks understand, you know, typical commercial rates, what a commercial payer would pay would be as much as 20 or 30% above what Medicare, the federal program for the elderly will pay a doctor for the same procedure. Um, If you get to Medicaid for the same kind of diagnosis codes, the same amount of time with a patient, it's 30% below that. So when you think about uh, pediatrics, a relatively low paid profession, and then Medicaid being one of the majority payers and your pay being 30% below something that's 20% below commercial. It's, it's a pretty tough run. Medic by Medicaid. What we're really saying is, uh, not fairly paid is what Medicaid is. Yeah. It's a nice rhyme, John, but it's, I don't think if you refine it a little bit, if you wanted to roll off the tongue now, we tend not to be, I'm usually the negative guy. I can't remember if I'm supposed to be the negative guy or positive guy today, but one area that we're sometimes a little bit negative about. You just seem to be posing questions okay. without really clear answers. I mean, this is a, we, we, we have a system, I think, David, which is changing permanently. Okay. So that I think is, is a thing. Now the question is, how do we make that thing better given the structural economics, the undertow Tour from individual practice to consolidation. How do we make that work for patients? I do agree with you about immigration, and I do agree that value-based care are good to to uh, to try to in- involve more of. And I also think that the specialists are overpaid relative to primary care. Uh, I think it's hard to get the profession to go and sort of shift the value away from 
you know, procedures towards more cognitive uh, care. That'll be difficult. Maybe it can be achieved actually through value-based care. I do think that it's possible that technology could make a difference here. And even though technology doesn't have a great track record in, in healthcare of improving physician practices, I think AI and particularly generative AI might actually be able to make a difference and possibly in a reasonably short time frame. And what do you mean by generative AI? I mean, all these big terms. Yeah. What, what, GPT, David, like what, what's the story there? The answer is ambient listening, John, which means rather than having the physician banging away at the keyboard and filling in a bunch of things and, and dealing with pull downs during the appointment, you can actually have the AI listen in and generate notes automatically coming out of the visit. So they're listening in, they can provide everything, and then the, the physician can renew it. So that's review it. That's a better experience for the patient because they can interact with the physician. The physician could even lay hands on them, et cetera. Um, and it's certainly better for the uh, the physician since they don't have to spend all their time there. So I think you could do a better job at rather than kind of hiding behind the the velvet, you know, uh, drapes of generative AI. I mean, so what we're talking about here is large language models are basically scraping, they're vacuuming up all the information on the internet. Um, that's what sits behind these generative AI uh, uh, software programs. They vacuum up and they vacuum up, they vacuum up. Google, Microsoft, as much data as they possibly can. They look for patterns that they can then validate as being accurate. And they are particularly good at gener identifying those patterns where there is high confirmation based on the weight of, this, of, the, of the probability of the thing that you're asking for being identified repeatedly and in similar form on the internet. And it's, it's sort of a, a massive uh, numbers, uh, a ma a computer cr math crunching exercise, uh, but it's very prone to identify correctly things that are rules-based. And so one of the more exciting applications of generative AI is this, you know, Panit Sony's Suki program, which we recently talked about, David, where He's built a piece of software that takes the that just rather than there's 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 a role called the medical scribe. Um, well, let's back up a second. One of the challenges of a physician patient interaction today is actually having the patient look in your eyes, not just your eyes, David, but anyone's to listen and because they have to fill in a lot of information and they've constantly got to document everything in their electronic health record in order to get paid. What Suki does is it listens or basically. Like, like a lot of software programs listens, and then it can take what the doctor's saying and what it's he's recommending verbally and turn it into a structured note so they don't have to be typing and looking away. And a lot, since a lot of the critical information doctors get is actually in the conversation and that connection between the physician and the patient, I think that's a really interesting point, David, that generative AI may actually not just make the doctor's job easier, but make them more connected to patients. And to your point, most technology has just added costs to physician practices over time. It's unclear whether all this note-taking would have been just done better with paper. Uh, but the, the, the generative AI, and, and maybe we'll try to get Panita on the show, uh, where it can take the information, the patient can be better connected to the doctor, and it can feed that as a structured note into the EHR and maybe, maybe even improve the morale of the doctor's while they're working in there, they're slowly uh, consolidating individual practices. Yeah, John. So there's a few different 
pieces here and there's some nuances in it. So one is this ambient listening so that they can essentially do the notes from the, the encounter. Now, I think what you're-, what but, you're but, but what does ambient listening mean though? You keep using yeah. these big words. Not everybody it's went It's in the background. Harvard. Well, you did, John, twice. I only went once. But the, uh, the it's listening, it's hearing in the background, right? But so it's something that's listening into the conversation. Now, having the computer in the middle where somebody's typing away actually kind of disrupts the conversation and makes it sort of too structured and you don't get all of the- all of the different uh, details and nuances that you might. So if you were freed from that and just having a conversation, the conversation might be better and then the computer is going to listen and you're going to get a better result. So that's one element of it that's good. Another piece is where the generative part of the AI that's more like ChatGPT that you can think about is when the physician has to do some communication, let's say with the, with the patient back and forth, it can be teed up by the generative AI for an email, for example. Then the other thing is sometimes you're trying to find a, you know, someone's on a diagnostic odyssey and you're trying to figure out like, what does this patient have? And it takes a long time before they ever get to it. The AI can actually be helpful in finding, not just using the large language model, but can actually figure out like what resource should it go and find that has objective information that's way beyond what's in the doctor's head or in their, or in their library to be able to help to get that diagnosis. And then the final thing is there's a lot of paperwork in the background that is just purely administrative, and a lot of that can be uh, automated uh, potentially with AI. So I do see these as being real uh, potential just on the AI side. Then there may be other things like uh, wearable devices that are going to be able to provide better data for when the patients, not just when they're in the office, but when they're out in their own um, environment. I thought you were a big skeptic of remote patient monitoring. Now you're turning into a buyer. You used to be anti-technology. Well, the technology is getting better, John, and I'm getting uh, my my standards are going down. No, the technology is getting better mostly, and we have ways to process the data because it used to be someone would you know bring a bunch of data to their doctor, right, and they, the doctor wouldn't even want it because like, what am I going to do with this? But now they have tools to be able to uh, uh, to interpret it, and it's easier to uh, get the data for people like you know people are wearing an Apple Watch all the time, which used to be hard to get them to wear the the wearable. Now they like it. Well, David, any, any final advice for the independent practice that wants to stay independent? Yeah, I'd say hang in there and um, try some of these new technologies. I would say there's a, you know, this next six to 18 months is going to be an interesting window when um, practices have the opportunity to adopt some of these tools and should, and should definitely give it a try. That's my thought, John. What do you think? I, I think that independent practices need to move quickly into coalitions that can, that can accelerate the attempt to get into value-based care. I mean, value-based care, healthcare in a budget is going to pay doctors to stay in business. I mean, they're coming out of a really hard period. Independent practices particularly suffered during COVID because they were shut down. And I think that drove some of the consolidation. But patients generally like doctors, uh, practices that are run by doctors. And uh, I think that, that if we can they can move faster away from fee-for-service, like those Medicaid examples that you pointed out in Massachusetts, to where they're, they're paid a fair amount to, to, to their jobs. I think they'll, uh, they, th- that, that and, and technology, doctors are, are generally slow to innovate. These are two areas that are absolutely critical for independent practices, I think, to, to align and survive with the, for the next generation. Well, that's it for yet another episode of Care Talk. We've been talking about independent physician practices, technology, value-based care, and so on. I'm David William, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the president of Walgreens Health. If you liked what you heard or you didn't, we'd love you to subscribe on your favorite service.